Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing a movie discussion, which is decided by the roll of a die. And the genre that was decided or rolled was foreign. And Troy Gwynn of the Bloody Pit and the Nasty Cast picked El Comandante, the Traveler from 1979, also known as the Devil Incarnate. And we're going to be doing that one in just a few minutes. I just also want to let everybody know this episode is coming out on the same day that is the birthday for Paul Nashy. As I said, Troy is part of the Bloody Pit, which is Rod Barnett's part podcast, so we're going to hear a little trailer for that. And then after that, we're going to go straight into the episode where Troy and I talk about this movie, and I hope everybody enjoys it. Have a good day. Bye. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil, and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today we have a treat because we're going into a filmmaker that we've yet to cover on the show who's done a plethora of movies, the legendary Paul Nashie. And there's only one person, actually, there's three people I could think of that could take me through this ground of Paul Nashie. But why go with the two that everybody thinks of with Rod Barnett or Troy Howard? I'm going to the person who's really the heart and soul of the Nashy cast and the Bloody Pit. I got on the show today, Troy Gwynn. How you doing today, Troy? All right, I'm doing good, Stephen. And uh, yeah, later for those other two losers, man. Yeah, you came to the, you came to the source now. So. so you're saying I got the correct Troy? You got the correct Troy. We, we, even, even the other Troy admits to being Troy 2. He, admit, he acknowledges that I'm Troy 1. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> or, or, or we can call you <laughs> Troy Prime. Enjoy <laughs> Prime. I like that. I like that. It'll be my new stage name. That would be a cool stage name. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> Troy Prime and uh, whatever you know, whatever you're you're calling the band. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
But how are you doing Thanks today, Troy? How's everything no, I'm going? I'm doing good. I'm mean, all right, David. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And um, before we get into the movie, if you want to let listeners know more about yourself, um, go for it. All right. Well, I'm a guy from a life, lifelong Nashville, native of Nashville, Tennessee. There are actually a few people here still left in Nashville that were born in Nashville, and I'm one of them. Um, most of us, the hundreds of people, hundreds of people that are flooding into this town every day. I think we're the second largest growing city in the country, I believe. Uh, and, and, and I can feel it. <laughs> I can tell it. I'm going to look out the window. But, uh, yeah, so, um, I'm, you know, my passions are uh, movies, uh, music, football, history. I'm a huge Godzilla fanatic. I've got a huge collection of Godzilla stuff. Um, and I've played, uh, played music, uh, performed live music uh, since, since about the mid-'80s. I'm actually a, a, what they call a walking Nashville cliche because I work in the music business by day and a music publishing company, and then I play music by night, which is that's exactly what anyone thinks. That's what people outside Nashville think someone from Nashville is going to say they do, and, and that's actually what I do. So, <laughs> But you don't play country music. I do not play country music. Uh, uh, I have before. I've, uh, you know, I've, 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 I've certainly dabbled and played, uh, not in an official band, but I've backed people up and uh, but, uh, in country music before, but, uh, yeah, but, uh, no, that's, I, I, you know, the bands that I'm in, the projects I'm in are not what you call country music. Yeah. Cause I understand you play, you play a different type of music, multiple different genres, but the one genre I think you've been doing, you, you're telling me earlier, the longest right now is Celtic music. Yeah, you're right. I've, I'm in a Celtic band called the secret Commonwealth and we've been together uh, 30 years now and still going, uh, we're working on our fifth album now. And, uh, but yeah, we uh, started uh, doing Irish and Scottish music and other folk music, but primarily that fall under the Celtic umbrella, but that's been the most important band, I guess the most fun band and I have, but I, I started out doing punk rock and, and rock and roll. And I still like to keep my toe in that world. And so I have another band called the exotic ones, which, uh, is a band that does a lot of sixties kind of psychedelia and garage rock kind of styles. Um, and uh, we've got uh, got a few albums out too, but a lot of our songs have monster, you know, horror, science fiction themes and that sort of thing. So, and my stage name in that band is Mr. Ghoul. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a fun. That keeps kind of keeps my keeps 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 my rock and roll uh, soul going there too, along with the Celtic. And uh, I have a little odd, odd, you know, here projects here and there I get involved in, but I've always got something going on musically. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my main passion, favorite thing to do. You got you got to hit all the creative sides of your soul, you know. So I mean, yeah. you got to go where Definitely. nature's telling you. At least this way, there's other type of music in Nashville besides country, so people don't think, oh, there's only country bands. No, there's bands of all different oh. types. Yeah, there are, and well, I'll tell you now that you know, I'll, I'll always tell people this is the best city in the world to start a band in, to put a band together, because just about any kind of musician you want, instruments you want, style of music that they play you want is you'll find that person the person is in this town um it once you put that band together it's it's you know it's i recommend trying to play outside of nashville as much as you can you know which i've never had a whole lot of chance to do a whole lot of but just because uh you know it's still driven the the, the industry here is still driven by country music they there's still not a lot of great not a lot of great support for original music here um so 
so you know it, it's hard to build a following of doing now my celtic band just because it's celtic and there's not a whole lot of bands anywhere you know that get the kind of music you don't hear every day so we've got a pretty strong following uh the rock bands are it's tough in a rock band to get any kind of attention uh because there's just tons of them here you know and then there's tons of places music venues it's still not enough to accommodate all the bands here and all the musicians because there's just so many here so yeah that would be my recommendation is yeah put your band you know put your band together here but then take it take it on the road as soon as you can because you'll find more support for original music and non-country music you know outside of nashville that's true and and you don't know this because i haven't told you yet but as we're recording this both my wife and daughter have been doing a cross-country trip and they've been the last few days they've been in nashville so I have oh, really? uh, my wife and daughter are probably nearby and uh, my daughter loves Celtic oh, wow. music. So it's a shame you're, you're, since you're talking to me, she can't be hearing you. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, cool. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to clue her in or, or, you know, have her look me up and, you know, see, you can check out some of her music. Uh, I'll go ahead and say that both my bands, the exotic ones and the Six of Commonwealth, they're out there on all the streaming sites on, uh, we've got Bandcamp pages. Uh, we're out there on Spotify, Amazon, you know, uh, uh Apple Music, all those, we can be found YouTube, we have a YouTube channel, so yeah, we're all out there if anybody wants to check us out. Definitely, you know, guys, you guys should seek them out and listen to them and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but I got a really important question for you, Troy. Yeah. How does a guy from Tennessee fall in love with Paul Nashie? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it starts from the point of being a just a lifelong monster movie, you know, horror movie fan uh, since I was, you know, old enough to watch movies. And, and well, most of what they showed on television, you know, were, were what I saw of the Universal and Hammer films, the kind of classic horror films that everybody knows. And uh, <clears throat> so I think that, you know, occasionally a Spanish or horror film or a foreign horror films would make their way sneak their way into American television. I was, I think when I started seeing them, I was too young to even realize, because they were dubbed into English, and I didn't even realize, you know, for a while, I wouldn't even know that they were Spanish or or Italian or whatever they were, but I certainly would notice something different about them, you know, whether I really even consciously realized that there was something that I found compelling and different and odd, uh, and I think I've just always been open to those kind of, uh, to anything that was sort of, off the beaten path and, and had a, had a weird feel to it. And I think really a lot of it was, you know, when it comes to Paul Nashie, of course, with his werewolf films, he played, he did, he obviously did played a lot of the werewolf, he played the werewolf a lot and, and did a lot of uh, classic, you know, had a lot of the classic monsters in some of his films, vampires and that sort of thing. And so to me, it was the, there was the excitement of just discovering, Oh, Hey, it's a new werewolf film. I haven't seen, or it's a new vampire film. I haven't seen. And so I would, yeah, I'd see it listed in television, uh, you know, in the TV guide and say, hey, I got to check this out. Um, and as both myself and my older brother started to see a, a few of his films that made it into American television, like Count Dracula's Great Love, uh, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, Horror Rises from the Tomb, you know, we started to kind of realize there's a same guy in these films. And I don't think it was until I got the Phil Hardy's um, encyclopedia of horror which is still one of the greatest reference film horror film books I, i've ever seen I, I mentioned it a lot on our show because it was really the first reference book i saw that went that did the really deep dive into foreign horror films uh, like italian spanish brazilian i mean that's where i first found out about coffin joe and paul nashi and lucio fulci and things like that um 
And so I started to read these synopsis of these films and realized some of these films are the ones I've seen and that there this guy, this guy, Paul Nashi, who was also known as his, by his real name, Jacinto Molina, wasn't just in these films, wasn't just a recognizable face that so many of these films he wrote and or directed. And that made me even more fascinated with kind of finding out more about him. And uh, I think, you know, really then we kind of get into the VHS age and the bootleg VHS age. I started getting magazines like Psychotronic Video and Film Threat and uh, magazines like that, that that would have ads that people would, you know, you'd see ads for people dealing in bootleg VHS of rare foreign horror films. And so I used that to start kind of cross-referencing, you know, uh, tracking down Paul Nashy films and his werewolf films and his other films and just started... Uh, uh, just started getting them by mail, you know, get the bootleg VHSs and starting to see whatever I could. Uh, you know, occasionally I would find something in an actual blockbuster, one of his films would turn up, uh, and I would rent it from there. And, and uh, yeah, just kind of really became more and more aware of, of just how important he really was to Spanish horror that he, and, and kind of started thinking of him as one of the great, one of the horror stars. I mean, I put him in the same categories as, you know, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Bela Gosi and Karloff and the people that, most film that most film viewers know a lot more, but I, I consider Paul Nashi part of that, and also even kind of apart from that, in the sense that unlike those other personalities, you know, Lugosi and Karloff and and and, and Cushing, who really were doing it as a living as an actor, uh, and sometimes not always by choice, being type typecast, but just sort of you know, hey, this is this is where my bread is buttered, so I'm going into this. I mean, Paul Nashi really embraced the horror films and loved the classic monsters and really wanted to do those kind of films. So that's sort of, and, and, and the fact that he was directed some of them and was involved creatively in so many of them also kind of puts him, I think, in his own, his own branch, his own niche. And uh, so I always just found him a fascinating person, me, and just more and more over the years as I got into finding out about his life, reading his autobiography, then to lead and doing the podcast on him and just uh, uh, found him a, a truly unique and I think very talented individual who really just constantly had to work against work against a lot of opposition and a, a lot of tight budgets and a lot of disappointments and you know his but his life was pretty fascinating <laughs> and, you, and you didn't just do a podcast on him oh like oh it's just a podcast the Nashy cast with you and Rod Burnett um have done I don't know how many episodes has, the, has it been on like it's 150 or more well it's well, it's 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 about sixty or seventy of the Nashi cast pure because you know obviously there was you know we we were you know we don't do a whole lot of episodes anymore because we pretty much got through just about all the films that we really felt that he was part enough uh, enough a part of even at least as an actor uh, you know to to cover. Now there's still things that we haven't managed to turn up yet. Obviously, there's a lot of his films are still pretty obscure and hard to find. We we keep watching for when they might show up on the special antenna as we call it, you know, to uh to be able to grab to see. But we've kinda gotten to the point where there's only a couple left that we can tell that he was at least a screenwriter for or had a had a uh, at least had that kind of involvement and, and sometimes, you know, you get these films and they say Paul Nash is in them and you get them and you end up being like he's in one scene, that sort of thing. So it's not really worth doing an episode on. So but what we did is we also started a, a second a kind of a second branch of it called Beyond Nashi that's that kind of under the Nashi cast branch. And that's where we cover other Spanish horror films that had people 
that we call part of the Nashiverse, you know, like actors and directors uh, who worked with him in the films. And even if he's not part of this film, you know, we, we it's, it's still part of that Spanish horror boom of the 70s that he really was instrumental in kicking off. Um, so we call that Beyond Nashi. So between the Beyond Nashies and the Nashi cast, you know, yeah, it's more it's more like 100 or so episodes. And what we've kind of gotten to now with the Nashi cast is because we don't really have many that many films left to cover these days is we typically now will occasionally have episodes where we'll have guest pe- guest stars or guest people on, you know, to talk about a particular Nashi film or just to talk about uh, how they got into Nashi and their own thoughts about Nashi. So, you know, in that respect, we'll probably keep it going, you know, keep it just keep on going. It's just the episodes don't hit quite as regularly now. Yeah, of course. But then also, you know, yeah, also Rod, I'm sorry, also I was going to say Rod does have his bloody pit. Um, podcast and i've been I've, i guess i guess on i've been probably on about half of those uh but i still guess on his, his show pretty you know pretty frequently to talk about other types of films so you know yeah between those two I me mean, rod and i probably all together done you know probably close you know 150 or more close to 200 episodes all together yeah because nashi cast you have 71 beyond nashi 36 episodes as we're recording yeah. this yeah and yeah. um, and then of course you said the bloody pit has been going on for a long, long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and that kind of thing. So, but it, it's it's nice that you've been able to dabble into the Nashi and really bring it to the forefront because I learned about Paul Nashi's films from listening to you guys on the Bloody Pit and then going back into the Nashi cast. You know, it's like it was like my gateway. Back, like you know, you start with yeah. the one and go to the other. And because uh, yeah. there, there are some overlap in certain movies there in are. both of them, and I think that's done mm-hmm. for that same reason. Because otherwise, if, if 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 you guys didn't do an episode with, or talk about Paul Nashi there, then I wouldn't have known to go to follow the breadcrumbs over to the Nashi cast. Well, you know, we've hosted um, we've hosted a couple of film viewings here over the years, you know, and and of Nashi films here in here uh, in Nashville, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, well, one of the things I usually start off the discussion with, I will say, kind of to answer your, you know, the question you asked is what qualifies, you know, two Southern boys, you know, to talk about a Spanish horror star and a Spanish horror film genre. And the answer is not a damn thing, you know, other than the fact that we just love the stuff, you know, and they love it, love the man, love his work and, and love talking about this stuff. And if those are qualifiers, those are pretty much the only ones we have, but, uh, but we certainly had a fun doing it. And, and so much of the gratification are the people who say that they kind of got into the films because of listening to our show. And that's, that's, I, they, we never get tired of hearing that. That's great. Cause that's really what we did in the first place was to share our love of it. And we didn't know, know that we'd influence anybody. We honestly didn't know that anybody would listen. That took the pressure off. Cause when Rod first came up with the idea of doing a Paul Nashie show, which really kind of grew out of our, just, we kind of had what we called Nashy nights because, Rod was the other person in our group of friends who was that much into Paul Nashie. I mean, we had a lot of friends who were into obscure films and cult films, but Rod was the only person other than me that really shared that deep dive into, uh, into Paul Nashie and Spanish horror. And so we would get together anytime one of us snagged one of his films through bootleg or whatever, uh, we would get together and watch them. And so the podcast just grew out of that and it was Rod's idea to do it. But it, a lot of the pressure was off. I, we felt because we felt like, um, you know, it's okay if we're not any good at this because nobody's going to listen to this, you know? <laughs> and uh, then we get out there and, you know, you put it out there and then you suddenly realize just that no matter what you do a podcast on, there are people who will find it and listen. And through it, you know, we 
we we have listeners in Spain and 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 Japan and and England and you know and we make good friends through it and it's led to a lot of really great things fun things but but it never get tired of having the person who comes on and says you know I knew nothing about these films until I listened to your podcast and they've made me want to go out and 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 see Paul Nashy films and occasionally we get the people every now and then there'll be the person that says you know I still don't really watch Paul Nashy films but I just love listening to your show which is that's really strange to me but okay you know we'll take it <laughs> well everybody has different things that brings them to your podcast mm-hmm. and how they're and what they're going to take out of it I know there's certain episodes yeah. of the bloody pit I'll listen to and I'll be like I'll enjoy it but it's like oh, I don't think that movie's for me and there you go yeah, but I enjoy sure. that episode so, and that's, and that's mm-hmm. the good part about it is like, you can listen to it and get an idea and gauge it for your own self. Like, Oh, should I, should I invest in that? Because a lot of these mm-hmm. are not available for streaming and you have to purchase a yeah. DVD or a Blu-ray. And uh, it, it's right. nice to have an idea of what you're going to be acquiring because otherwise it's a blind purchase. And we know that you know, it can work for you against you. It's a 50, 50 shot. Sure. Sure. Now you, but one of the things I was going to say, you and Rod, Obviously, over the years, it became so knowledgeable that there are certain movies that you guys have done commentary tracks for. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that's just one of those things that you never think of is going to lead to. But yeah, it turned out Mondo Macabro, uh, when they acquired the rights to do uh, the film, that Paul Nashie's very first directorial output, which was Inquisition, it, it one of the people that works at... Uh, uh, Mondo Macabro was just a listener. He had never even contacted before, but he just listened to our show regularly. And when he found out that his company had the rights, he, he you know, he reached out to, to, uh, Rod and me and said, you know, said, Hey, we're going to be releasing this. Would you guys be interested in doing the audio commentary? And we're like, um, let's see, let's think about that for a minute. Are we, do we want to do that? You know, we were like, uh, we were like, yeah, yeah, of course, obviously we were like, Oh, please. Yes. So, uh, uh, yeah, we did that. And we've done now, I mean, we've, we've, we did, we've done several for Mondo Macabro. We've done uh, uh, several for, we did a, a few for uh, Scream Factory when they put out those couple of good uh, collections of Paul Nashi films they released. And uh, and then we've done some other Spanish horror films too, you know, and worked for a couple other companies. We did one for Synapse, you know, on the Tombs of the Blind Dead uh, release, which was a big, big thrill for us. So that's one of the key keynote films, you know, in, uh, in Spanish horror and, uh, but we got to do some of our favorite Nashies, uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb. We got to do uh, Hunchback of the Morgue, uh, Night of the Werewolf. And then as far as some of the non-Nashie films, we've done Ghost Gal, I mean, not Ghost Gal, excuse me, but uh, Night of the Seagulls, which is another one of the Blind Dead films. We did uh, The Lies Grass. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, we've overall, we've done probably about 15 commentaries. I think, and uh, we've got, uh, you know, we've, we've got a couple of potential ones coming up uh, soon. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been exciting. It really has. It's not one of those things you ever think about, like, oh, that's what this is going to lead to. And it's, it's, but it's, it's been great to do. And we actually did one with, uh, with Troy Howarth, uh, who, who uh, you and I were talking about off air as far as it really does some great commentaries. Is we did a, a jam session, jam uh, uh, audio commentary of Rod and I and Troy on for uh, Mondo Macabro's release of uh, Paul Nashie's uh, Frenchman's Garden. So the three of us did that one together. I just find it amazing because sometimes it's how you can have something you love and end up to being able to parlay it by sheer luck and coincidence mm-hmm. into these commentaries on other things that you love. And it, it's just, yeah. it's just one of those things. It's like, Oh really? 
you want us to do this? Sure, sure. Twist my arm. I'll, uh, uh, you know. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, as film fans, we always love audio commentaries. Were always an exciting thing when when they started to being being able to be part of film tech, film home video technology. You were always excited to say, oh, there's going to be an audio commentary on this, but you never thought you'd be doing one. So, uh, you know, so yeah, they're, they're fun to do. They're a challenge to do. They're obviously different than very different from doing a. You know, you got to approach it differently, different from doing a podcast. Uh, but uh, they're always there. Uh, it's always been really uh, very rewarding uh, to do those. But again, it's like I said, it's, it's not one of those things that you you even think for yourself that that's that's going to, to happen. But uh, but yeah. Um, there was one other Paul Nashie film I've seen. I'm trying to remember its title, and I saw it like two mm-hmm. years ago. I know you'll probably be able to come up with because it's it's a film where he turns into a werewolf. Now I know that's like almost all the half <laughs> of them. But it's the first one. It's the first one where he turns into the werewolf. Because they originally wanted yeah, to get Lon be... Chaney Jr. to play the role, but he oh. was too ill to travel. Mm-hmm. And Paul Nashie ended up doing it. And which one was that? Yeah, that, well, the, the original title is Mark of the Wolfman, is the name of that one. Uh, yeah, it was actually a German-Spanish co-production. And, uh, yeah, and you're right, you're right. Uh, Paul Nashie wrote the film, with, had no intention of being in it, uh, wanted Lon Chaney to be in it. Uh, but when Lon Chaney was too ill to do it, then they just did, producers just approached Nashie, you know, and then, or Jacinto Molina, uh, as his name was, and wanted him to do it. But they also, uh, they wanted him to have a more marketable name. Uh, to, so he had to come up with a stage name, and he had to come up, he was wanting to come up with something that sounded vaguely, you know, kind of German. So he was, uh, he chose, uh, Nashi was actually the, you know, Paul, Paul Nashi was a, uh, uh, Jacinto Molina was a weightlifter. He was a, he was in weightlifting competition and, uh, there was a, one, there was a successful weightlifter who I believe went by the name of Nashi, a German weightlifter. And Paul Nashi just took his, you know, he took the name Nashi, took the name, and Paul was the first name and, and, and that name stuck as his, as his, uh, stage, as his acting name, Paul Nashi. Uh, but it was all because of being in that film because they didn't want to list him as Jacinto Molina, the German producers of Mark of the Wolfman. But the funniest story about Mark of the Wolfman, and that's the first one that I saw too. I didn't know, you know, again, having no idea that it was Spanish, that it's Paul Nashi had any significance, but I still remember it was, uh, it, it got distributed over here under the title Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. And the reason that happened was because uh, Sam Sherman's, uh, I think it's Independent International, I believe, is the company that uh, Sam Sherman ran that distributed films on the here on the drive-in circuit and all that. And he had wanted, he had been promised a Frankenstein film. And so the, the, so the German filmmakers, they had to give him a Frankenstein, he had wanted a Frankenstein film. And so all they had to give him was Mark of the Wolfman. So they just changed, even though there's no Frankenstein monster or Dr. Frankenstein anywhere in the film, they changed it. So they gave it to him and he changed the title. And they came up with this wonky prologue, which somehow, which sort of explains in just a few, as a, you know, a voiceover just comes on and explains how, you know, the Frankenstein family was cursed by lycanthropy and they changed their name to Wolfstein. And, and they, that's pretty much all the explanation they give. And so the film is called Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, even though, there's no Frankenstein monster anywhere in it, and so I'm see this movie listed in the in the television listings under you know we we had a great in Nashville at this time in the late seventies I mean it was our, it, the local television channels Saturdays were wonderful because they would show two horror movies in the morning you know usually start about eight o'clock and and then the second one at ten and then they would show two more 
horror or science fiction movies in the afternoon. And then late night on a different channel, those are on the UHF channel. And then late night on, uh, on one of the other regular channels on, on Saturday night, they would usually show a couple of horror movies uh, late, real late night. And, 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 and sometimes Euro horror films would find their ways into that listing as well. So Saturdays are just a great day for, for watching, uh, seeing horror movies. So I saw, uh, that there was a film called Frankenstein's Bloody Terror listed. And I thought, okay, a Frankenstein movie, I'm there. Got to check this out. And I think I was, for some reason, I didn't, I was gone or didn't get up in time or whatever. Either way, I only turned on the film for just to see the last 30 minutes of it. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing werewolves. I'm seeing two werewolves and, and two vampires. And I'm just totally enthralled by whatever this is. Uh, I did realize that there was, you know, I was wondering, so where is Frankenstein and, and the monster? And uh, still, still, that was, you know, I still never forgot it. And, and that, uh, that was my, uh, uh, just because, again, it was a very thrilling finale there to the film. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the first one I ever saw, you know, even though technically I only saw, like I said, the last 30 minutes of it. But that, that was my first introduction to Nashie too. was that one. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. I enjoyed that one. And one day we might cover that and get more details with it. Um, the reason yeah. we're doing this particular movie is because you and I ran into each other at Monster Bash this past June, 2023. Yeah. And I said, oh, do you want to be on the show? And you're like, sure. So you got, I handed you the dice. And mm -hmm. uh, for listeners, there's two dice that have the genres on them. And nowadays we roll both dice and that decides what movie we're going to do. And you rolled musical and you also rolled, rolled foreign. And I said to you, you can pick a, a foreign movie, you can pick a musical, or you can combine the two. And you decided to, for a musical, you were thinking Scrooge, but we thought that'd be better to do in December. So listeners, Troy's going to be coming yeah. back later this year, and we're going to be doing Scrooge. And then, yeah. and then, So then you were thinking foreign, and you were thinking, I told you, well, you know, we've never done a Godzilla movie, and we've never done yeah. any Paul Nashie movies. And then I could see for 24 hours... There was a war going on in Troy's brain as what was yeah. going to win out. You know, it's like, I could do this movie or I could do that movie and I could yeah. go this way, that way. And you finally picked, as listeners already can guess, the Paul Nashi side and you picked El Caminate, The Traveler, which was released on Blu-ray as the devil incarnate for whatever reason. But you know, I like the original title better from 1979. So what had, what, what led you to choose this particular movie? Yeah. Well, as you said, I, I really had two major dilemmas going on. The first dilemma was whether to do a Godzilla movie or a Paul Nashi film, because those are two of my biggest passions there. But you know, Godzilla is pretty hugely popular and gets talked about a lot, you know, out there. And there's a lot of Godzilla things happening. There. So I always feel like the need to get more Paul Nashie out there and get the word out more. It, it, I think that's what won over in that first one. Then the second dilemma is which Paul Nashie to do. And I think my first things that were popping in my head were kind of the usual that I think people would suggest, you know, somebody who's never seen a Nashie film or is new to Nashie films, you know, which would be, you know, one of the werewolf movies or at least one of the great horror movies like Horror Rises from the Tomb, which is one of the great, Spanish horror films, um, or Hunchback of the Morgue, which is one of his best. I mean, there were a lot of those jumbling in my mind. And then I just started thinking about uh, El Comandante, which was one of the great surprises for me and Rod when we, when, we, when we started doing this podcast, you know, as were a lot of the films that we had never seen before. 
And we knew nothing about that film other than that, hey, this is a, a later or late 70s film that Paul Nashi, once he had gotten into directing, were doing. So, you know, we got it knowing nothing about it and got a hold of it. And just, you know, I think the British term is gobsmacked, you know, I think we saw where you're just, uh, we were just speechless by how, how what it, what an undiscovered gem it was. And so, so I thought at this time, yeah, I just thought to go the opposite track this time is instead of starting you on something that is quintessentially you know or, or typically nashy like one of his you know monster tropes you know one of his monster mashes or a werewolf film I, I thought i would just drop into the deep end with one of the films that i think is is probably the best you know probably the best film he directed and and is not typically nashy it's typical in some ways it's very indicative of what nashy was going through personally at the time it's a very personal film for him but i think it's the film that would get the most to me, I thought it was the film that more the most people could come into not being, you know, not being into the things Nashi was normally into, or not being into horror movies, or not being into monster movies, whatever that could could come into and and be really uh, surprised and impressed by. So yeah, I decided to go the opposite, the kind of different route this time, and just uh, and 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 do something that was a little more not typically Nashi. And I'm glad you did that, be um, going with the non-traditional one, and. Mm-hmm. I watched before I watched the movie. There's some bonus features on there, and one of the ones this is an introduction by Paul Nashi for the movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, of course, before I watch the movie, I should watch the introduction, you know, because it's you know. So I watched that, and it, it's a great. But I think it's like ten minutes long. I didn't time it, but it felt like about mm-hmm. ten minutes of him talking mm-hmm. about the movie. And as you said, he felt it was his most personal film. He felt it was, if I remember correctly, his best film. So he thinks this is like his best mm-hmm. work. Or at least according, mm-hmm. at least at the time that they're doing the interview, you, you never know the different interviews, different times. As we all pick different films yeah. in, our, in our lifetime, it, it could alter. Right. But in this moment, right. and he was explaining how he felt the film was timeless because and we haven't gone over the plot yet or covered the movie, but I'm going in the order I encountered it. It's how man was in the past, at the present, and in the future will always be the same. They're always going to act out with certain ways, certain things, and things will never change. So it's very it's, it's, it's very interesting to get his frame of mind going into that, mm-hmm. making that film. And in here, you know, 25, 30 years later, I'm not you know, sure when he did the recording because mm-hmm. he was a much older man, you know, but yet he still mm-hmm. felt that same way. And it's just um, uh, it was interesting because of the, the, the way he was looking at how we will not change as a society as a human society and how things will always yeah. be there. It, it still held true to him, maybe even more so in his later years than it, pro- than it might've done when he filmed it. It's hard to tell, um, you know, about reading d- data on it, but it was, I, I thought I knew going in then, okay, this is something that he was really dear to him. And his words were, every word is gold. Every, so listen to the words, which of course I don't speak Spanish. Um, so, Sure. I was reading the subtitles, and, right. and and there's a lot of great dialogue sets in there. Yeah, and I think it is. Yeah, it's very well done. And what do you, I mean? Because I, I don't know. Did you watch the introduction again? I'm sure you saw it once when you first got the Blu-ray. Yeah, and I did not watch it again for yeah to we watched it. I did not, but but a lot of what you're saying there sounds like it kind of echoes a lot of what I did go back and to read what he wrote in his autobiography, which. Uh, um, I, I highly recommend uh, Paul Nashi's uh, Paul Nashi's autobiography. He's a uh, 
very good writer. I mean, even if you're not even his films so much, I mean, he's like that. He's just, he's, he's, I wish he had written more. He's, he's really very good writer. Um, but also there was a magazine um, called Videos that was a film magazine uh, film uh, that came out uh, back in the 80s. And it was made by a guy named Bob Sargent, who we've had a couple of times guests on our show. And that book, that magazine's kind of been the Bible for a lot of our episodes because uh, he, there's a great article on Nashi in that where our Nashi pretty much talks about they got quotes from Nashi about all of his films, and so I, I read from that as well too. And and a lot of what you say he says in the in the introduction, yeah. And then you're and like you're saying this was years later. Uh, he still hasn't really softened much his view on humanity. Uh, but one of the things he says is autobiography. One of the quotes is he's when he's talking about El Comandante is he says this was made from the depths of my soul and it's a cry of pain and desperation and despair. And um, he says uh, everything can be bought. The message is that everything can be bought and everything can be sold, you know. And 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 he really felt like we live in the age of of the devil. And and a lot of this was based on what he was <clears throat> going through professionally, uh, just. Uh, the career disappointments and just the betrayals he felt by a lot of people that he considered friends and really just the betrayals he felt by a, of a film industry that he felt he had, had benefited a lot from his work and, and, and that just, but just kind of wanted to cast him aside and that he wasn't, uh, didn't get any appreciation for, um, you know, and, and this was, this was his fourth film as a director. Um, and I think it is his best film as, as a director. And uh, it's um, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was gonna. I'll, I'll let you finish your thought. But I was saying that it's it is a very you know one of the, one of the things that's kind of typical of Nashi films uh, of this uh, of this time in the late seventies and early eighties um, is there is this a really deep thread of cynicism and kind of bitterness and and going into you know going through the films you know and and kind of a uh, Rod and I sometimes categorize them as uh, you know, Nashi's uh, Human Beings Are Pigs films, you know, and of course there's even a direct quote in this film, El Comandante, that refers to human beings as pigs, but there's another film we made called Human Beasts, uh, which has a lot of imagery of, of humans as just, you know, animal, uh, as swine, you know, and and, uh, uh, and, and, that, and there's another film called Panic Beats. Uh, it all kind of uh, that's very cynical and and a lot, full of a lot of cruelty and brutality and 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 it all kind of culminates in a film he made, which is fantastic called The Howl of the Devil. But that's a film that I would recommend seeing a lot of his more classic work before seeing Howl of the Devil because so much of Howl of the Devil is a reflection on the, even the character he plays is basically playing a an aging horror star. Um, and uh, and 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 or two two characters playing multiple characters in the films as he does in many of his films he doesn't do that in El Comandante but a lot of his films Nashi plays multiple roles in but uh, yeah so so I think that that a lot of a lot of what this film was just filled with just kind of his I, I think other at this time he says other than his family you know there really wasn't anybody left that he trusted anymore now he eventually did he said you know he has admitted that in his in his later years you know he did find not only that he was appreciated a little more but also he found some a few more people that he could rely on but he just at that point he just felt outside of my family you know i just i don't trust anyone and that kind of comes through very much so i think in this film this film was was so interesting to watch and 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 to go through because of the the 
morality play that is playing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I enjoyed the morality that they were showing with the different characters that, that he's encountering, the traveler is encountering. And mm-hmm. also I enjoyed the cinematography setting up, but I think what I enjoyed the best in some ways from the production side was the costuming and some of the, the location shots that they were able to utilize yeah. and get. But his costuming, yeah. the costume that he, the costume he was wearing, or where he, because he wears multiple ones, it, it, it just mm-hmm. fit in so well. So it's, it's not often in movies I give credit to wardrobe, but whoever was doing the wardrobe was was on their A game on this particular film because you know, there's they don't have huge budgets, but yet they were able to make yeah. it look so much more extravagant with what he was wearing and the other characters are wearing yeah. too. Yeah, I agree totally. And I hate that I did not actually write, I wrote down the technical, some of the technical credits here and I, I should have written down the costuming credit. Uh, and I don't think I did, uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. The, the uh, costumes are terrific and the look of the film is terrific. It doesn't look, you know, other than, other than, yeah, there's not a whole lot of, of actual, you know, human bodies in it as far as large cast, you know, I mean, there is a large cast. I mean, there's a lot of, of characters, but, you know, there's there's not any obviously big budget scenes, but uh, they they but the film looks terrific and they use great uh, locations. And that's, you know, one of the things Rod and I talk about a lot about is Spanish horror films and European horror films in general is they they often have so many just great locations just naturally there because of their history, you know, right, you know, crumbling castles and things, you know, and, and uh, just some ruins and just great, uh, great uh scenes that you can you can make a low budget film look so much better with the right cinematographer which Nashie definitely had on this one and uh can just you know come up with some some truly uh truly stunning visuals uh with on barely any budget uh, i'm gonna let listeners know because i'm about to say the name of the, the costume designer the one Go name that troy and i know for sure that we are saying 100 percent correctly is paul Nashie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're right 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 the names that we say after at least for me it, yeah. it, it's, oh. it's 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 hit or miss more miss probably than hit um troy's probably gonna do much better but since he didn't have it written down i'm gonna make the attempt um mm-hmm. leon Reve- revolte Hey, it works for me. <laughs> and Listen, you know, it's one of the running jokes with the uh, Nashi cast, with Rod and I, even after all these years, that our Spanish pronunciation is still very questionable. And we always just, a lot of times, just apologize off the, you know, up front about that. It's like, we don't intend to mangle these people's names, but we're just two Southern boys trying to uh, uh, get our minds around Spanish pronunciations. And, 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 and we're probably only about 60, 70% right most of the time, so... That was the costume designer, but to give credit, because you never know how much is in there, there's one other person in the costume department, Carmen De La Casa. So those okay. two were in yeah. charge of the costuming, and I'm not, I, I wouldn't give them credit because it was excellent. Yes, yes, and it kind of reminded me of Hammer costuming, the Hammer films, where they have a lower mm-hmm. budget, but mm-hmm. yet the costuming was so well done. It, 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 yeah. it sets some, it, you can, it can, help you with a lot of production values that might be lowered because of budget. But if people look the part, it really yeah. does. It does. It does help everybody follow into that um, fantasy of watching films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. And I think before we get any more, Troy, if you want to give a brief synopsis of the traveler, I'm calling it the traveler. Cause okay. I'm, I don't want to keep butchering. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, and actually, I need to ask you, like, how? What's your policy on spoilers? How deep are we going into these? And and as far as when we discuss the, you discuss films here, uh, do you have any preferences on um, that? I don't think we want to spoil the end, but I think we have to with this particular film because it's 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 a very important thing to talk about. It fits the whole storyline. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, yeah. we will spoil the end when we you know, when we get to, maybe not spoil it during the synopsis, but we, we, we'll get to a spot where when we get near the end, we'll warn you yeah. that it was spoiled. But I think yeah. most of the stuff that we'll be talking about won't be, I mean, you'll get, a, I think, a rough idea just from knowing the synopsis. And I think also, again, listeners are going to have to buy the Blu-ray, um, which is readily available. And I want, you know, I want them to get, just like you guys don't the other things, a fair impression of what the movie is about. So that way they can make yeah, that. Because right. this movie is, is not going to be for every um, listener because there is a significant um, nudity, uh, male and mm-hmm. female, and there are some scenes yeah. that you know that, that could give people some pause. Um, yeah, yeah. Of the problem, I agree. Know? So I just so that warning is there, you know. So you, you know, you know, everybody knows who they are, and you, and you know what, what yeah. type of things you can or want to consume. Uh, I did not know that yeah. going in, but I also knew it wasn't going to bother me too much. So. At all, yeah. you know, yeah. this film, this film, if it was, it fit with the, the with the, the message they were trying to get across, and so on. I mean, you know, it's it's we're talking about mm-hmm. the, I mean, the other title is the devil incarnate, so we are talking about Satan, the devil. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it kind of mm-hmm. gives it away in one of the titles. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that's probably not really a, a, a thing that we'd have to worry about spoiling is just who our traveler is, you know. So, I think. Well, I definitely agree. Uh, so, without any further yeah, ado. I turn yes, it over okay. to Troy to do what Rod normally does on his show. I know, yes, Rod normally does the synopsis here. So this is my, this is, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not an expert synopsis giver, but I will tell you that, yes. So Tom Nashy plays the title character, uh, the Traveler. Uh, he is the focal point of the film. He is wandering through the uh, Spanish. This would be called, I guess, medieval era uh, countryside of Spain. And it, uh, he, when he he encounters right off the bat, he encounters a fellow who's uh, who's got some food and wine available. They sit down and talk, and pretty shortly, you know, pretty quickly, it turns sour, and um, the traveler kills the person who has shared his meat and drink with him. Kills him and takes his clothes. So we find out from the very first that our traveler is a pretty unscrupulous and brutal character, and then he uh, he's we next see him walking in the clothing of the person he's just killed and robbed and he looks up and he says this is a beautiful world i'm really going to enjoy it which is a strange thing for a man you know obviously well on in you know in his you know in his adult years to say um but as essentially what follows is a very anecdotal film i mean i think if any film could be described as a series of anecdotes you know a series of vignettes uh it's this film um it because basically the traveler he, he quickly um rescue or freeze a freeze a servant from his cruel blind master and becomes this servant's new master and guide and the servant has even though the servant has been whose name is tomas has been treated really badly by all of his previous masters uh, he still has kind of a sunny outlook in a way on you know he kind of has an optimistic outlook on the world and meanwhile our traveler is insisting that you know, all humanity is, is just out for its own gain. You know, there's no nobility, no trust. Yeah, you know, every uh, everybody's just, he even says, like, human, human human beings are the most evil thing in all creation. 
and throughout the film, as they continue, as Tomas and his and the traveler, who goes by the name Leonardo, by the way, Leonardo and Tomas go from one location to the next, um, you know, robbing, exploiting the people who host them. Uh, certainly, uh, Leonardo is very much the hen, and I mean the rooster in the hen house. You know, where he goes, he's uh, he seduces women, uh, betrays them, just as he's seduced them into betraying their husbands. You know, and um, basically he's trying to continue to teach Tomas that this is the way the world works. Um, as we go on, we begin to see there's signs and dialogue from the traveler, uh, signs that he may have some sort of power of mesmerism, something supernatural about him, and also that he's um, he makes references to being, you know, of, 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 of who he, you know, who his identity might be, you know, and who he's there, you know, he keeps it hidden. But Tomas Mezogoan begins to wonder, who is this guy really? And what are these strange powers he seems to have? Um, but as we get into the last third of the film, things begin to turn against them. We also see that they can be betrayed just as well. You know, Leonardo is definitely not superhuman and he's definitely not uh, uh, always on top of, of his game. He gets betrayed too and, and, and gets fooled and, uh, it kind of becomes kind of a back and forth between who Tomas and Leonardo are going to get the upper hand on and then how quickly it's going to go sour on them. And uh, finally, we get to uh, uh, about, uh, yeah, as we start to get towards the last third of the film, um, Leonardo kind of shows Tomas that even their friendship is really something that, that's just an illusion that's only there for his use. And he betrays Tomas in a big way. And that, uh, that starts to lead to his own downfall. So I think maybe that's maybe the most I should say at this point. I think so. And because, as we already said, Leonardo is Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, whatever you want to go with, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And his from from what, the way I encountered this, and I think you probably are the same way, he is doing the same thing. He, he's doing his own version of being Jesus. He's come to earth to be mm-hmm. mortal, to see yeah. what it's all like and to cause, in his mind, miscellaneous mischief, even though it involves mm-hmm. killing, raping, and other stuff, to the devil, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, a, that's a Tuesday. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and he thinks that he's, he thinks that he's as evil as humanity is, he sort of feels like he's, he's still like there to, like, like he's going to, uh, always kind of be the one that's going to come out on top, you know, that he's going to be the one who's, he's, he's more, he's still the one who's the most devious and the most clever and that humanity is just so stupid and greedy and that he, and selfish that he can just, you know, always like trick them into giving him anything he wants. He's just, his plan is just to rise up without any powers, without any, you know, just, just through his own wiles and his own exploitation of human humanity's failings, you know, weaknesses that he's just going to kind of rise to the top that way and i love it when we first see him especially after he um, and then later when we, when he kills the the guy who's like the swordsman and takes his clothes he just looks so charismatic so charming oh, yeah. i mean you're just looking yeah. at him that the hairstyle the beard the wardrobe and you're just like wow you know this is guy that just walked out of a painting you know type thing yeah. And the camera yeah. just loves yeah. him, and and he's the most evil, possibly the most evil thing on the planet at that time, and uh, yeah. it's, it's just it's just amazing how he just draws your eye. The camera just he just 
his charisma is, is off the charts. Paul Nash's charisma playing this role yeah. is amazing. Yeah, you know, you see a lot of times people, you know, kind of the, going, the, the kind of the thread, the common thing that people say about describing Nashy when they haven't delved really deeply into his films is, you know, the kind of a uh, stocky guy who looked like John Belushi, you know, <laughs> what they end up. Uh, you know, and there's something to that. And in fact, it's funny because they make some funny references to his weight, you know, and his size in this film, which which are part of the dialogue, which is fun. But I think that they, uh, one of the things they also make a reference to that points out very truly is one of his greatest, one of Paul Nash's greatest attributes are his eyes. And he uses his eyes, he, he could use his eyes in many different ways. It was very expressive. And it, when you see his werewolf films, you know, he, you see the Lon Chaney Jr. side of Paul Nash, he, like kind of playing the, cursed sensitive you know uh sympathetic character and he can he can have a very sad and very uh, vulnerable look in his eyes so that make you care about him but when he plays evil characters like uh his um alaric demarnak character that he played in um, panic beats and horror rises from the tomb um or or when he's playing uh, mr hyde in uh, dr jekyll and the werewolf or in this film he's uh, he can do the exact opposite with his eyes he can just radiate glee you know just gleeful evil and gleeful uh and i think that's the way kind of really he's so joyful in this film and so enjoying so much when things are going his way uh he's just having such a great time and it shows in the character's face you know he's just beaming with with with, with sly uh and underhanded intent you know and it really comes uh through in his eyes and and nashi yell yeah, what you say is exactly yeah and nashi had a great screen presence uh which people don't really i think realize till they get into how good an actor he was and, and how much uh, screen presence he had and, uh, and he wears the outfit. There's so many times in the films when I've said, "Man, I want his outfit." I mean, he wore—he really could wear some serious. He could—he could really wear wardrobes very well. Oh, that, that wardrobe—it it fit him like a glove. And talking about his yeah. eyes when he's doing that evil gleam, I've never seen anybody twirl their mustache in their eyes before because you know it's just because <laughs> he's not doing it, but you could feel it. It's like it's like ah, this is all going great. Which is uh-huh. bad for uh-huh. us. Anytime he's happy, it's bad for everybody else. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, I, and and speaking of the Jesus metaphor, the storyline with that, I look as Thomas as being his mm-hmm. first yeah. apostle. Because you know, I'm, I'm going to teach you the ways of evil, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. And he learned yeah. from me and then and, and, and all these messages because he's the only other character that's in the movie for the most part. You know, like it's pretty much yeah. a. Yeah. It's pretty much a buddy picture once Tomas gets in, or a road and a road picture, road buddy picture. Right, right. And I just yeah. love the mor- yeah. with the morality, but I don't. I really don't consider this, by the way, a horror film as much as no. a drama about society. Right. You could. You could. If you want to call it a fantasy film, you know, it could fall under that category and all. But it's. But you're right. It's much more much more grounded in humanity i mean the supernatural aspect of it is pretty pretty subtle and 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 uh um i almost thought that in you know there's a couple of times when this kind of red glow comes over the traveler you know uh when he's kind of mesmerizing somebody and i always thought that was an interesting choice and i I, i'm wondering if i was kind of surprised they didn't hold that back even more you know to, to just keep try and keep people coming into the film at the time when it's just called the traveler and not really sure what it's about, maybe to keep them a little more off balance, a little longer about who this person really is. So I thought some of the choices to kind of tip the hand a little earlier in the film with those, that kind of red glow that comes over him, you know, it kind of was an interesting choice. Um, but, 
but yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I, yeah, it, it's definitely not a horror film, although it has some, but it certainly has harsh, like you mentioned. It, it's got stuff in there that people would probably find. Some people might find a little hard to take, and I'm not talking about just the nudity, but just you know some of the cruelty. There's some scatological humor, which was not really part of. I mean, Nashi didn't do humor a whole lot, but there's some funny stuff in this in this mm-hmm. film. Yes. I thought. Uh, and I'm not, you know, and, and uh, Spanish, Rod and I have done the occasional Spanish comedy um, with hit or miss results. Um, you know, a lot of times the humor just doesn't really, and then that's the way with sometimes with several movies from several different types of foreign countries. You know, I know like a lot of times like comedies from China and Japan don't always work on me. A lot of the humor doesn't always go. So sometimes they do, you know, and, and same way with Spanish, Spanish horror is, is, is a lot of the time Spanish comedies it don't you know the humor just uh doesn't uh you know it is a little seems to me a little too broad a little too exaggerated uh nashi really only did one other as far as what rod and i covered um as far as what nashi wrote um you know he did a film called operation mantis uh which is not really a great you know not one that i'd recommend real highly except for people who are just nashi completist and really get deep into his filmography it has points of interest for sure but humor wise you know, most of it doesn't really work. Um, I think the thing that, that uh, worked for, one of the things that helped with this film, with what he was trying to do, is he did co-write it um, with a woman who was a novelist, and um, her name, first name is Eduarda, and unfortunately, somehow here in my notes, I, I, I don't know if you have that in front of you with the co-writer there, somehow I managed to not write her last name down. I don't know how I did that. I'll make an um, attempt. I'll make an attempt. Yeah, yes, but Eduardo, anyway, he had, tar- written, he had directed tar- Targiani. Yes, thank you. Eduardo Targiani. Yeah, she had written a, a novel called uh, Naked Madrid, uh, which was a satire of the Spanish film community um, and film industry. And Nashi, that was one of uh, Nashi's first films to direct, was Naked Madrid. Got him in a lot of hot water uh, uh, because it, it, it did satirize very brutally, uh, very uh, incisively, the uh, the Spanish film industry. And so Nashi directed that film and, and kind of lost some friends that way. So he sort of, he, he, uh, I don't think he realized what he was getting into other than the fact that I think she, because she had a, a sharp ear for satire, I think when they, he had had the script for the traveler ready to go. And he asked her if he said he wanted to do that film and he asked her if she would help him with co-writing, you know, to, you know, to sharpen up the di- some of the dialogue and some of the satire in it. And I think that's what she brought to it. I think it's why the comedy, a lot of the comedy works more in this film. Uh, um, is because probably a lot to do with maybe her touch, and um, and that's why I'm saying that also some of that scatological humor, uh, which was not normally a part of Nashi's work, uh, that's in this, and kind of um, I think that I think that's probably more down to her, but it's also probably a lot of the lines that are funnier, you know, maybe also attributed to her as well. I don't know that for sure, but I'm just saying that probably helped to make a lot of the humor because to me there there's a lot of the humor works in it. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty funny. Oh, it is because he plays these little pranks and does these other little things, and the humor there really works well. Like, and you talked you talked about it already. There's the with the blind person; he's thirsty, and he calls Tomas yeah. over, and he um um fills the cup up with his own um, bodily fluid from a lower region, yeah. urine, right, right, <laughs> and yeah, gives yeah, it yeah. and gives it to Tomas, who thought thought, thought this hilarious, and he gives it to the old blind man to drink, who's Prior to that, to give listeners, the audience is probably thinking this is funny because this guy is 
not giving Tomas really anything to eat because he's giving he's eating four times the amount that Tomas is, and Tomas is helping him and all this other stuff, and he's treating him verbally abusive, you know, and so it yeah. sets the background up that this whole relationship has been an abusive relationship, and so you 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 don't mind it as much when this prank is played on, you know, an old blind man. Um, right. You know, so just to give an idea, it's, it's almost like he was deserving of it the way the film mm -hmm. went about doing it. But I think it shows also one thing I read is like Tomas is this innocent person. And I'm thinking you can see how he was starting to get corrupted right then and there. And, and, and each step yeah. he loses more and more to innocence. And there, one yeah. thing I read says he loses innocence when he has the dream and I'm thinking that he lost it way before then because he led people to their death. He did other stuff. He was helping yeah. in stealing and and and, mm -hmm. and a lot mm -hmm. of other things. So his innocence was gone well before then. But the, it started with the um, the passing of the cup. And it's interesting that they use a cup. I don't know if I'm overanalyzing this or not, but the Catholic Church, of course, you know, the body and blood of Christ in a cup and using that as yeah. a vessel for – the, the devil's um, urine, you know, is it's it's kind of an, yeah. a metaphor right there that could easily be used. Yeah. That's good. No, that's very interesting. That's very, I had not thought of that, but I think that's very possible. That, uh, listen, one of the things that we know, when people ask us some of the, the ask Rod and I, we, we've talked about what are some of the things that distinguish, you know, Spanish cinema, Spanish horror or cult cinema, whatever, you know, different from, you know, others like Germany and, and, you know, and, and, and Italy and that sort of thing is, is that I feel we've always said like one of the key things driving them are, is, is, is the Catholic influence. You know, it's, it's like, you, you just don't see it. You see it some in Italian films, but nowhere near as much. I don't think there's any other country that where, where it's so much a, a part of what, you know, underlines their films is, is the, whether it's, you know, whether they're a kickback at whether they're kicking back against Catholicism or sending it up, or criticizing it, or whether it informs, whether it's inspiring the film, it's just a very, it, it's a thread through Spanish horror, that uh, Spanish films that, that really kind of distinguish them, I think. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I had not thought of that, that, but yeah, I would not be at all surprised if there was something in, in religious, some sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, un, I guess the inverting of, which there's a lot of inverting, obviously, of, of, of religious imagery. Some of it really, some of it really overtly done, you know, like when he just, there's like a, you know, when he just kind of uses that skull to knock over the cross in that scene, you know, where there's that cross on that table and he just like knocks it over or when he turns the cross upside down, that's on the wall. I mean, sometimes it's even more blatantly, you know, uh, there for you to see. And also when he, um, branded the one woman that, um, he seduced, yeah. Yeah. um, and things like that. And he branded her buttocks with a upside down mm -hmm. cross. And it's just, became, yeah. We, mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, that just, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, and that became the key image from the film that was used in all the advertising and the movie poster and all that. And it, and it is one of the most, it is one of the most kind of shocking and, and, you know, uh, cruel kind of instances from the film when he does that. Oh, definitely. It's, 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 and he like, it's, it's his whole mindset and it is just amazing how well it's shown in the film. And, and I think Tomas's character is so vital to be in there because you needed this person to be, to have him to play off of and to lead down the path. 
and yeah. and I think that the, the, if you only had Leonardo by himself doing all these encounters as the traveler, I don't think the film would have worked nearly as well. So Tomas's character was was pivotal, especially yeah. when we get to, we yeah. talk about the end um, and yeah. how it all ties together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one of the things about the film that you know it, it may be difficult for people to. You know, because the character of Leonardo, like, you know, he, he's he's not just, you know, at times, you know, he seems like he's almost kind of there to punish mankind or just sort of be this, you know, spirit of, of retribution. Like, he's, you know, he but he doesn't just, it's not just obviously bad people that suffer at his hands, you know. I mean, he is the devil after all. And he's, you know, the what we talked about previously, the way he treated the, the woman who, and it kind of depends also maybe to do with, maybe it's a reflection of Spanish ideals too, is like, you know, he, he, he claims he's punishing her for the fact that he was able to seduce her into betraying her husband. So, you know, again, you know, the idea of adultery at that, you know, in that country, you know, obviously it's pretty, you know, it, it, it could be that people, could be people saw that as, you know, that she was, you know, that she, whatever was, you know, he, he, he was able to find the, the untrustworthy side of her nature, you know, but when I'm watching, I'm sitting there thinking, man, she didn't deserve that, you know, uh, you know, and it's kind of, kind of the way with the woman later that he seduces and actually kind of the woman that I guess he, uh, felt actually some kind of feeling for, but there's a, in one of the vignettes, there's the, the, the woman that he seduces and, and impregnates you know, and, and it's pretty cruel what he does with her daughter, you know, the way that he makes her think that he's healed her daughter, uh, in order to get her to sleep with him. And, and then later, very quickly after he's gone, the daughter dies. I mean, when you look at that, you're like, okay, I don't really, you don't really see those characters as being deserving of punishment really, you know? Um, so, so there's no question that he's, you know, he, he's not like just some, some character that you just kind of root for in a way because, oh, he's everybody that he's, he's mistreating or abusing just deserves it, you know, or they're that, they're, you know, he, they, they, it's not, it's not the film. And this is common of a lot of Nash's films is that there aren't just the easy cut and dried answers there to actions and, and to character motivations. And, and Nash's Nashie was pretty complex. I think he was, he was a good man, I think, and, and very, uh, tr- a person who could be, would be very trustworthy, I think, if, uh, and, and, and a person who's admirable in a lot of ways, but he was very fascinated and, and paid very much attention to the dual nature of, of humanity and, 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 uh, people's complexities. And he works a lot of that in his stories. And a lot of times there aren't the easy answers with, uh, the characters. There's, there's kind of layers to, you know, what's really admirable about them and, and, and you know, and how much you can really, side with them and how much you have to kind of realize that they're doing things that make you kind of make you uncomfortable, you know, that you, that you can't really get behind. And I think that's the very much part of this film is, is that there's a lot of things that are kind of tough to, tough to take, uh, you know, that, that this character isn't necessarily just an anti-hero. He's, he's, he's really a villain, you know? Oh yeah. I don't want anybody to get an opinion at all that he's an anti-hero. He is, he is evil and to be despised. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and going back yeah. to the child and the mom, the, the the daughter is very sick and yeah and he says oh i could heal her but it'll come at a price and you know because the mom will say she'll do anything it's like any, almost any mother would do any parent would do right. anything to save their child and especially because her husband's already dead so this is this is everything to her and yeah so and he says okay just give me the night and again you go back to 
he's supposed to be the reverse of Jesus. Of course, you know, it's kind of ironic here. He is healing somebody, but he wants, he says, the price is your honor and, and that kind of thing. And, and so he heals her. And then that night, that following night, um, he has her honor and then he leaves. And then yeah, yeah. they don't show, I mean, you could assume it's the next day. I mean, it's hard to tell how time passes in this, whether it was, a, but I think it was within the next day after he had left, she's in the room and that's when she discovers that her daughter is dead and, and that kind of thing. And, it, and it's just, you know, the devil is so evil here. He's like, Oh, I got this honorable soul, this honorable person who to do this horrible thing, just, you know, to save her daughter. And I don't consider what the mother did anything dishonorable and no, nowadays no. because it's the same, you know, what would you do to save your child? And if that was the price, you know, she was willing to do it. And, and of course here she thought she did, but it's like anything with the devil. It's, it's, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's not going to work out in the end. And so it was, that was, that was, that was, that was probably, if this, if you were going to call this a horror film, that, that scene there, that, that, that with the daughter, that whole little spots that they were doing, that's probably the most horrific um, scene. Yeah. Yeah, agreed, agreed. But yeah, Nash, he definitely plays by the uh, kind of, you know, he definitely, cater, you know, uh, he doesn't make any illusions about what the, you know, what we've always known about the devil is you you can't trust him and he, he stays he stays to that, true to that. He doesn't introduce some kind of nobil inner nobility to this character, you know, at any point, you know. So uh, and if there's anything, it's just, you know, but I do think the message that ultimately he's, he's undone by the fact that humanity is still, you know, at the end of, the, you know, humanity, I mean, as far as his, you know, every time he thinks he gets the upper hand, you know, something comes around and bites him, you know, because humanity is, 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 is very much capable of their own, their own cruelty. They're not just sheep, you know, they're not just lambs for him to, you know, for him to exploit, you know, everyone he does, and then it comes back on him in, in ways too. And, and since we're talking but around it, at this point, we're just, I'm just going to say, we'll, we're going to spoil the ending for yeah. the rest. And so we're going to, we'll talk about other stuff too, but just we'll hit, we'll hit the ending. Yeah, since. Is very important because I definitely have some. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about that. So we do need to, to address the ending. So yeah, so yeah, if you haven't seen the film, you might want to stop here and go see it, and then come back to us. So yeah. Otherwise, the but the ending, I thought was so interesting in how he did it. Because again, when I was watching the introduction to, that Paul Nash, did you know was introducing the film, he talks about uh -huh. part of the ending and how by sheer luck, happenstance, they find the um in this one hill and it, just when the sun was about to set you know when oh, yeah. the light was vague they find um this 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 building or whatever and they go drive over to explore it and there is a statue of Jesus crucified and two of the um um other you know two of the, the people the, the thieves or whatever that were crucified yeah. at the same time and he wrote that night a scene and they came back the next day to film it. And it, it's just, just to show him playing off of a statue and just, you know, talking about it. And I thought that was very well, that one that they realized it, it was sheer luck and happenstance. And two, yeah, it just fit with the whole motif, but I thought that was going to oh. be the end. And the movie went on for another like five, 10 mm -hmm. minutes. <laughs> well, that, that scene is just, uh, 
I mean, I, I know I know in his audio commentary that was one of the excerpts of Troy Howard. He said he thinks one of the, maybe the most beautiful image in all of Nash's films. And honestly, I think I probably agree with him. You know, I think that 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 scene when you first see it there, that panorama there, you know, of, of him crucified, you know, with him hanging up on the cross directly across from the cross with Jesus, you know, the statue of Jesus on the cross, and and with that landscape behind him. I mean, it's just a perfectly shot image, and it's as good as anything I've seen in films. And um, we should backtrack and say that this is after he's betrayed Tomas and Tomas has gotten his revenge. And this is where Leonardo is Leonardo in a really brutal way, you know, basically sold Tomas's body, you know, sold Tomas to a, uh, a, 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 a rich man who wanted the use of Tomas's body. And so Tomas is raped and Tomas then, you know, ends up basically doing something that really Leonardo would totally understand and does understand in, in a way is that, you know, uh, Tomas, you know, just decides, okay, well, I'm still going to try and make the best of this and exploit it to my, you know, value. I've got this rich man who wants me, so I'm just going to let him, you know, lead me into this pampered life. But first I want to get revenge on, on Leonardo. And so Tomas, you know, they hunt down Leonardo and Tomas has, has Leonardo beaten and, and hung up on this uh, cross. And, and, uh, that is the most significant scene in the film, you know, is when he's, he's, yeah, he's talking to the statue of Christ and saying, you know, Lord, how can you possibly love these, these pigs? You know, how can you possibly love these swine, these awful people? And why did you do, why did you allow yourself to be killed for them? Sacrifice yourself yeah, yeah, for yeah, this? Right. And yeah, yeah. Why did you die for, yeah. Why did you die for these people? And I yeah, think it's just, yeah. it's a matter of looking at it in, in two different aspects. Mm-hmm. But just, just to, to mm-hmm. backtrack again, when the dialogue between Leonardo and Tomas, when Tomas mm-hmm. got his revenge and everything, you could just see it was the final, totally, fully corrupted and and done. You know, like he's he's a finished product. Yeah. Now he can go preach the um, Satan's word to other people, so to speak, through his deeds and actions from and into his family. And, and spread yeah. the word of evil, um, so to speak. Um, but that scene, I, I agree with uh, both Troys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, with, with that, uh, how Nashy was able to get that set up and do and write that in one night. It's not a long scene listeners. It's, it's like 30 seconds, yeah. a minute tops. Right, right. Um, but it was filmed and done. And, but that's, but again, you think it ends there and it could have ended there. I mean, yeah, it and, really could, and it could have ended there and still been a, a really, really good film, almost a great, to me, a great film. But it goes on for a little longer, and um, it, ha- it has an ending which the, I guess, was the scripted ending because obviously the other one was different. And I like how that ending bookends with the beginning. Yeah, yeah, and but now let me ask you this: Did it okay? Because basically, what we're talking about is just as in the beginning, this time. He is, you know, he's been, after he's been beaten and manages to get his, to get himself off the cross he was hung up on, he's still in pretty bad shape and he's just living, you know, on the roads as a poor, you know, uh, as, as, you know, still traveling, but just there trying to eke out any means he can. And this time he's, he's wandered just as he in the very first of the film wandered up on a down on his luck person who, who had some, some food and wine to share. Uh, you know, now he has been, somebody else wanders up on, him and they kind of do a reversal of the scene yeah right where he's he's robbed you know he's robbed and killed by the person who wanders up on him uh but that's well when he's killed that frees him then to become the real devil again yes 
And uh, I will say this is something I've never noticed until rewatching for this show that you and I are doing. Um, but the way he's dressed when you actually see him truly as the devil is really reminiscent of the way that he's dressed. Paul Nash is dressed the very first time we ever see him as Valdemar Daninsky, his werewolf character in uh, Mark of the Wolfman, a.k.a. Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, uh, because he's going to a costume. The first time we see him in that film, he's going to a costume ball. And the costume he's, direct, he's dressed in, I mean, yeah, I never thought about it before when I saw it. It really, the hat he's wearing and the, and the tunic and all that, it, it actually uh, it, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know how much that was intentional or not, but it almost kind of looked like his very first appearance as Valdemar Daninsky. Um, but I wanted to ask you something because I want to turn back to the whole subplot of the child, of his child being out there. Um, did, it, did you feel that, that, that there was still a beat left with that story that we didn't get? That it that it that it it could have gone a little further, or there, that 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 was kind of left hanging. I mean, I well, well, I didn't mean to make that pun because because yes, yeah. his, his, the mother once the child is, once the child is born. I should I shouldn't have said that. I should have taken credit for that. But no, I did not mean. To, uh, but yeah, when the child is born, the devil child, she hangs herself, but she makes the her, uh, you know, she makes her makes her servant, her maid, uh, you know, promise to promise to protect the child you know and that's kind of where we're left with that but you know nashi nashi wasn't we always talk about the nashi stew we mentioned a lot right now you know about how nashi threw in could tend to throw in so many ingredients in his films and occasionally threw in so many interesting ingredients that not all of them ended up would end up getting uh would would be fully realized and my feeling about here's what i thought and I don't know if you had this same thought. In the last scene of the film, when Nashi is there by the ruins and he's he's eating his food, and and he and the traveler comes up, the new traveler, the young man comes up to see him. Did you did you have the thought that that was going to be his son? Well, that this is, goes back to the passage of time, um, because mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. the, the, the doesn't really doesn't tell you how many days have gone by, and like it, it looks yeah. like a short yeah. period of time, but obviously. A nine-month pregnancy went on. The baby was born. And then who knows how many days after that when she hangs herself, which is about the same time he's being beaten and crucified, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And then we don't. And then there's this period of time afterwards. So I guess, yes, you could interpret that as being his son that is doing that um, to him, you know, because we don't know, again, what the passage of time is. I I just took, looked at it as another person that came across them showing yeah. that man is so evil and so guile that yeah. they've, they've already yeah. adapted to his tricks that he did earlier and they're already doing it before. And it just shows another traveler and um, mm-hmm. go with that, yeah. that, that thing. So yeah. I, I didn't really look at it as being the sun. You can read it that way. I mean, I, which I think is well, fine, but I, 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 I didn't think of it as being a son until you brought it up. Um, yeah, no, I don't, and I don't think it was either. I mean, I think what I'm saying is, I mean, yeah, because I don't believe that ultimately is what that's supposed to be, and that's why I'm saying that I felt like the whole son subplot there may have just kind of gotten left. Like it's an interesting part of the story for sure. I mean, because really the rest of the film is total forward momentum. I mean, it just totally moves forward from one anecdote to another. That's the only thing that we keep getting shifting back to to see it developing. So there is the knowledge that he left his son in the world, but I just thought that there was going to be something more to tie that together. And the first time I saw the film, when that person walked up, that young man, I thought like maybe a few years had passed when that young man walked up. I mean, my first thought was, I thought, oh, this is going to turn out to be his his son. 
and I don't think that's what it was supposed to be. I'm not thinking that there's still a way to read it that way. I don't believe that that was, that was the intention there. I just think that the sun basically just ended where it ended, but I just thought it was, you know, I thought that there could have, I'm kind of, you know, was expecting there to be a little more to happen with that story that, that, that never did some sort of reuniting or some sort of acknowledgement of it. But uh, I think it was just kind of more just a, you know, a different thing that was just kind of left on its own and not really, not really resolved. But, uh, but I mean, I like the ending very much the way it is. I mean, the way it does play out, you know, because, you know, I think it's a very effective ending. I think what could have been set up, and now, of course, I'm looking at it in a modern lens now. If if they, uh-huh. if the did if the film did well, oh, we could have a sequel, because he yeah. could still yeah. be the devil because the devil, you know, is internal, evil's always there, and then his son could be older and. You know, and it, it, it's, and, and it could do a playoff of that. And, and being that, you know, Nashy did so many different films with the Wolfman, you know, yeah. that, it, it, you yeah. know, it could have been something that was left in there because, oh, if I want to come back to this, I can come yeah, that's back. A, you know, that's very good. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. I had not thought about that, but you're right. It does kind of set up things for a sequel that never happened. And it wouldn't be the first time for Nashy because if you ever see Count Dracula's Great Love, which is a very uh, has a lot of problematic things plot, plot wise. It's very com- complicated and a little muddled plot wise, but it's visually just a, a film I could watch over and over because it's just a stunning film and, and it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy Count Dracula's Great Love, but a lot of the problems with the oddities with the plot uh, stem from the fact that it was trying to set up a sequel that he already had planned and he never got to make. So yeah, that could be very much a part of, of what's going on here. And you mentioned, uh, had the film been successful, I'll, I'll go on and say that, um, you know, what one thing's interesting about this, this film was that it really was very well received in Spain. I don't think it was hugely financially successful by any means, but critically, it was probably one of his most well-received films when it came out. Um, it was pretty, it received a lot of pretty high praise. Uh, he mentions uh, in his uh, autobiography that there was uh, one of the major film critics um, who was not Spanish, I believe it was a German film critic, but he called it a minor masterpiece. And then there was a film professor, a Spanish film professor, who was very well known, named uh, Adolfo Camilo. And he his quote about it was that it was the most impressive and quintessentially Spanish fantasy film ever made. Um, so... It received very high praise, and it did very, and it um, it, it played at a, uh, a film festival uh, that it won the Best Fantasy Film Award winner, and it won other prizes, and I think Nashi won an acting award for it. So, but despite all of that, it never got released outside of Spain, which just blows my mind. I mean, it never played theaters outside of its native country, and so that's why it just remained, you know, unseen, and probably also just did more to kind of. Uh, add to Nashi's just growing just disappointment over all these failed projects, you know, how he just couldn't recapture the past, past glories, knowing that he was doing good work, you know, and, and, it, and it just wasn't translating into uh, getting him more opportunities, you know, for his career, for, for making films and more the kind of what he felt would it should have been a little more recognition. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, I think you're right though. Had, had, had it, had it played and had it had some international success and, and more, you know, than yeah, it's possible. Uh, uh, I think of possibly that he was thinking in terms of a sequel. Ironically enough, you can say the movie called the traveler didn't travel. Um, you know, <laughs> did not travel. Did not, did not travel, travel at all. No, it most definitely did not. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, um, 
you know, keeping in mind that Nashi directed this and it was only his fourth film as a director, you know, it, it, I was impressed as always, again, just how once he got into directing, how assured he was as a director. He's not, you know, Rod and I have always have talked about, you know, that he's never he's never a flashy director. You know, he's never a director who wanted to call attention to himself too much with a lot of directorial touches. He, 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 he's much more about the story and about letting actors drive the story. But he has his moments of very nice, uh, you know, great compositions. And, and like that whole opening scene where the first time you see the traveler, uh, he's, he's, you see him through a smoke, you know, fire, you know, he's looking through the, the, when he's wandering up on the guy who's having the sitting by his campfire, you know, and you, you see him through the smoke and flame. So it's immediate. And from the very first scene, it's telling you what's going on, who he is visually. And, uh, things touches like that. I think he was, he was good at doing those without really calling a whole lot of attention to himself as a director, but he obviously paid a lot of attention through the years that he was just, you know, working as an actor and screenwriter so that by the time he, he did come to direct, you know, you can, he has a, a, a pretty assured hand. I mean, the films are, 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 are very well told, I think, you know, and very coherently told visually. One thing I want to mention is we're talking visual. You always have to, I, I always feel you have to give credit to the cinematographer also. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I did write his name down because he right. I was going to get around to making sure we mentioned him. So thank you for bringing that up. That's yes, it's Ale, Alejandro. Well, now I still may, I don't know that I'm totally right about this last name, but it's Alejandro is his first name and his last name is Uloa. Is how I'm going to say it. Um, I'm, 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 I was not sure how to say the last name either, but we already told people, um, you know, take but, take uh, our yeah. take our pronunciations with a, a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. But this this guy definitely needs to be mentioned. He's kind of one of those unsung heroes of, of of foreign film. I mean, he worked on a lot of them. He had a really did you know I think hundreds of I think uh, uh, well over a hundred credits I believe uh, of cinematography and and uh, he worked with Lucio Fulcho with Jess Franco. He did one of my favorite horror films, uh, uh, Horror Express. Um, he worked on most of Nashi's directed, early directorial films. Nashi used him, and, and, and very rightly so, because uh, Uloa is just fantastic. Uh, he And this film just looks great. I love that. And it, apparently, uh, Nashi and Uloa, before they made this film, they went to a museum to look kind of at the artworks that they wanted to give it the look of, because they knew they were making something that was going to be kind of classically based. And there's a, uh, a couple of... Uh, there's a Spanish painter, uh, Brugel is his name, and, I, and I've seen some of his works, and Nashi used his his art as an influence on the look of his films, and another artist, Van Eyck, uh, that uh, he used. But but he, Nashi and Uloa kind of went to the museum and, and just kind of looked like, yeah, we want the film to look like that. And a lot of the film is very painterly, and then the lighting on it is, you know, so much of it looks like it's kind of uh, lit naturally, um, much in the same way that Kubrick did... Uh, um, Barry Lyndon, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it has that kind of look. Um, I think the color palettes are pretty amazing. You know, it's a lot of browns and golds, you know, it just has that kind of soft look. And, and Nashi and Eloa used this again for uh, a couple of his other films from the time. Uh, his first, the first werewolf film that he himself directed, uh, which is Night of the Werewolf, uh, looked very much in this, this same, uh, same kind of color and, and lighting. I was going to say, when we talked about that scene, you even said True Howard said was just beautiful with the crucifixion scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's so well shot, you know, and you know, both of them yeah. had to go through and set that up. And, but yeah. I want, there's another scene I want to ask you about 
Because I thought it was interesting yeah. how they did it. And that's when Leonardo is sword fighting with, um, yes. with yes. The, the guys that were jumped, like they, they were getting robbed. And, um, and he's sword fighting like four or five different guys. And I thought it was interesting. Uh-huh. They put the camera in the meadow. And yes. you have, yes. you have yes. grass or some, you know, some foliage obstructing sometimes your view of what's going on. And it was done in the distance yes. where you could see, which is being a martial arts guy, guy who loves watching martial arts films. You love it when you could see everything in one shot. You know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's there. Yeah. But, but I thought it was ironic, interesting that because they had to make that choice because they could, the, obviously the cameraman would have saw, hey, this is in the shot. Do we want to leave it mm-hmm. there or do we want to pluck it? You know, let's just pull it out of the ground. And I, I was, yeah. I, I thought, what did you think of that? What did you think about that that choice by the cinematographer and director to leave that in there? I mean, eventually they moved on from that shot to show other parts yeah. with close-ups and other things. But it, they were in that shot for at least a minute, I think. I didn't time it, but it felt like at least a minute of this action scene going it is, on. Yeah. It's a strange choice. It is a strange choice. It's one that I've... Uh, what's the quote from the uh, what's the quote from the Grinch where it said it puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore? You know, that is like <laughs> that's one that I've that's one that I've puzzled over uh, that scene there because I don't know quite I don't know if I've ever really known fully what to make of it why it was filmed that way. It's very interesting. I think I want to say when Rod and I discussed this because I didn't go back and listen to our episode either and haven't listened to it in years, and so I almost feel like. When I was, I think it was still like Rod may have speculated. Uh, he may well be right that it was strictly to cover up the fact that they'll make it easy to hide the fact that it's not Nashy doing the fighting in there, you know, as far as in the long, you know, that they're using a double. But usually there's more, less obvious or less blatant ways to disguise something like that, if that's even the case. I mean, I don't know how much, because if we don't see it, I can't really tell you if that's Nashy doing most of that, of his fighting in that, or if they did bring in a a, a a stunt double who was who was, who knew who could fence better, but what a strange if that is the case. What a strange it's almost like it's almost like a wink or a humorous part of the humor is like hey we we know what's going on here and we're going to make this funny that we're not going to show it to you. I don't know it, it, it's one of those that I kind of wrestle around with. And I don't think I've ever come up with a really satisfying answer as to why the shot was filmed that way. But it's so bizarre, yeah, that you watch this entire action sequence when we finally get to the biggest action sequence of the film. That is, uh, that is shown mostly through weeds, you know, mostly through foliage. You know, you're looking through and everything's kind of obscured. Uh, very strange choice. Yeah, it was – I was nonplussed by it. I was just like, why are they doing yeah, this? Because yeah. it, it would have been f- fine if it was just for a brief couple of seconds, but when they lingered. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. wondering, too, uh, was that a stuntman and they just didn't want to show mm-hmm. him, I mean, which could very well be. I mean, it's – but then again, it was such well, a distant shot, it would have been, I think, hard to tell if it was a stuntman. But then, but again, they know their crew better than, than we would. Uh, but it was just, it was just I thought, that's something I had to bring up because it was just this, such a, a, a weird choice. <laughs> no, I'm glad you did because you're right. It is something, and, and another thought I had was that, was it not originally planned that way? But, you know, you, you use camera setups and you leave the camera there and you go ahead and keep filming and they film the whole sequence that way with the thought that it was just going to start that way and be cut to other cuts, you know, other like scenes from different angles of the fight that it was just going to begin maybe that way. And then some, but, you know, but they obviously filmed it, much. the film went ahead and filmed the sequence through that lens and then went ahead and filmed it from other angles and somehow in the directing, in the editing, when it came down to the editing, 
maybe the choice was made somehow for whatever reason to just leave that scene in its full entirety rather than make cuts to other, you know, maybe that's the case of what happened. I, I, you know, it's a really baffling. I would love to know what, what the thinking was behind that. I I will say when I was watching the shot, I mean, you really couldn't make out Leonardo, but you could see the brigands, I guess the best way, the robbers or whatever, they were fighting. You could see them being fought off from all different angles. I mean, it was like Leonardo was a whirling dervish, you know, going around and fighting. And I think that might be why they kept that shot because it really showed their reactions so well. Yeah. And that's very good. You couldn't couldn't make out the, you couldn't make out the um, Leonardo too well, but you could see everybody else being like fought off. And I think maybe that's why they decided, Oh, look, this, this is so dynamic. And it's and it's all in one shot. Let let's let it go. And uh, but I, I just thought it was interesting that they left the grass up. That's all. I was just like, why would they leave that little bit of grass up just yeah. to hide it? That that was just because I think if that would have been moved, unless the stunt double is so obviously not, yeah, Paul Nashian build it for Zeke. Like it was just so different. Um, it, mm-hmm. I think yeah. it would have worked well, but if, but if it would have been something that would have totally taken you out of it, and you and I have seen many a movie where you can tell, also that's a stunt oh, yeah. double. It doesn't even look anything oh, yeah. like the other person, especially in lower budget <laughs> films. You know that could yeah. take you yeah. out of the shot. And I, so yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the argument you guys were saying that it was a stunt double, one that did not mm-hmm. really look anything like Paul Nashi in physique, and <laughs> that's why he did it. And I enjoy that they did do that in some ways because, like I said, the reactions of that fight scene, it just really made you feel that Leonardo was this powerful fighter, you know, and, and, that, and yeah. that, that really yeah. came across. Yeah, it did. It did. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I know one thing I want to say about this film, and I, I, I made the comment when Rod and I first, you know, watched it and did our first show on it, was I came away thinking, because a couple of things that, you know, if I were going to describe it to someone, it's like, okay, put it in terms of other films. I think I'd probably say it's The Magic Christian meets Pasolini's The Decameron. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, but uh, The Decameron really, I feel like this film reminds me of, and it's kind of its bodiness, certainly its setting, its time frame, but also it's kind of its scatological humor, its bodiness. Um, its anecdotal nature, you know, uh, was, uh, it's a Cameron. And then of course the magic Christian, which is just, you know, essentially the, the, the whole, you know, going through corrupting, you know, how easily corruptible humanity is. Um, but I told, I said in the show, I said, you know, if, if this film had been released with a name like, you know, Pasolini or, uh, Fellini associated with it, critics would just be falling all over themselves for this film, you know? And um, it would be considered a really strong art house, you know, uh, worthy of art art house kind of, you know, that sort of prestige. Um, but because it was Paul Nashi, you know, and because of the the just the lack of real, I think, promotion it had, and just uh, uh, maybe the, the just the stigma associated with, you know, uh, you know, his stereotyping as a as a as a where you know mr werewolf you know the horror film man you know that it just you know didn't get that kind of it it just has never it's just been falling through the cracks and and really you know uh you know kind of it, it was just toiled in obscurity for all these years until finally we got this you know great blu-ray release of it oh i'm, I'm glad to have the blu-ray release and i'm glad you know yeah 
you know, for the last several years or more, people are getting a legitimate way to watch it, you know, besides the illegitimate means or the gray market, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, and it's it's and it's um I think it was a two K or four K restoration, so it's it's beautiful to look at. And mm-hmm. like we said with the no, cinematography, anytime yeah. I'm gonna bring up again any that you mentioned earlier, anytime Leonardo uses his powers, I love it how they use the red tinted light so you just know mm-hmm. what's going on and yeah and, and and filmmakers nowadays they do so much like oh we gotta use the cj and sometimes it's just a just a little change of the tinting of the light and the and the body language that paul nashi is performing for leonardo is enough to tell you what's going on and you can see what is happening like in one part you're yeah. seeing paintings change um what yeah. they're showing and other, you know, other parts he's like healing the child or doing this and that. Yeah. So, you know, what's going on, you know, the powers are being utilized. Yeah. And I, I think that sometimes people think they have to do too much. And sometimes yeah. I think the lower budget films, especially explore that less is more approach and get yeah. it across so effectively, you know, sometimes even way better than bigger budget things at that same era. Yeah, agreed. And how about that great scene where he opens the door and the red light's behind him? That's an awesome scene where he's just silhouetted in the door, you yes. know, door frame. So that, that's great. Yes, and that just tells you uh, the cinematographer and the director working so well together. And yep. again, it's hard to credit who, which one. You know, the, part of me wants yep. to give the cinematographer a little more credit because that's their area. But I also know that mm-hmm. they're also trying to get the director's vision across and so I, I, you know, it's so dependent on who the director is and what they're known for. It's always hard to say what percentage goes where. You know, because some directors are so visual that you know that they have a higher percentage than maybe the cinematographer normally would have. You know, because they they know exactly what they want things to look like, and they're so yeah. meticulous. Well, I think Nashville would go ahead. And, and I, was, I was finished. I was finished. So and so meticulous about it. Yeah, and I think that Nashie. And that always struck me as the kind of person who would let, who would who would appreciate and let you know the person, the technical person, do their job. Like I don't think his ego would have gotten in the way of you know of of, of you know knowing what he wanted, but also taking letting Uloa use his expertise, you know, free to use his his expertise and his training to do what you know to to really make it come out the best. Because I know Nash even. I think it's in his autobiography or one of either his autobiography or in that issue of videos, he even makes reference to that. He was using the best cinematographer in Spanish film, you know, in Spanish, in Spanish film industry, you know, it's something he put it something like that, you know, like he knew the quality of who he was working with. And, 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 and so I imagine he, I would imagine Loa had a lot of input and, and contributed a lot to what was going on there, you know, that, that, and actually probably got out of his way, I would assume, you know, uh, to let him do, you know, work his craft. And um, do you have any final thoughts on El Camarante? Um, no, just that, just that it was, you know, I'm, 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 I'm glad that I kind of decided to, to go this route with let you see this as one of your first Nashi films and, uh, hopefully, and, and, uh, hopefully then now you'll kind of go back and maybe get a chance as time goes by to check out some of his earlier, more, more kind of, kind of, I guess we'd say more typical Nashi monster movie works, you know, horror film works, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, Again, you know, Nashi, uh, I'm always happy to talk about Nashi. I really appreciate you giving me the chance to do this and, and hopefully reach, you know, get his name out to uh, maybe some new people and uh, uh, really hope more people check this film. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll give this film a chance. 
Oh, I really, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you picked it. And it reminds me of a film that we covered earlier in our pot in the, the Diecast podcast, the seventh seal with how it takes the oh, trauma fantasy and relationships with religion and other stuff going mm-hmm. on. And, mm-hmm. and the bleakness both of them yeah. have about society. I think, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm sure that Paul Nashie saw the seventh seal because it was, it was way, it was 20 some odd years prior to the filming of this. Mm-hmm. And I wonder mm-hmm. how much influence that might've had with him um, when looking at some of the motifs that he was using um, and that kind of thing. But I think it, it, to me, it, if you like the seventh seal and uh, you're no, probably, you're, you're going to love the traveler. It's as long as again, like we said, there is, there is um, a lot of frontal nudity and other things that, you know, yeah. could, that could be off putting to certain viewers. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. No, you're right. And I think, um, I mean, yeah, I love, I'm a huge Bergman fan and I love seventh seal and seventh seal is probably one of the most influential you know, foreign, you know, most influential, most influential international films made. Um, and so I would not be surprised at all if it informed some of Nashi's thoughts on this film. Uh, I would guess he probably had seen it. Oh, I'm sure he has. And, and for listeners that want to hear you and Rod talk about El Comandante, it's Nashi cast episode number 15. Yeah. Right. Gosh, all those years ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah, just a, just a weed, just a weed year, yeah. you know, just not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yeah. Check it. Yes, uh, everybody out there. Yeah, check out the check out our Nashi cast. Uh, the episodes are all out there. And bloody on the bloody pit, we do various films. We like that Rod and Rod has done other. I, I should mention earlier, you know, Rod is is our doing audio commentaries. Is Rod has done quite a few now with other people too. I mean, his uh, so he's out. He's been getting more uh, audio commentary work out there a lot of films and uh and yeah and so uh, and on our on his on his regular his, his overall more wide-ranging film podcast which is called the bloody pit uh he and i we've discussed other films we discussed some godzilla films on there but we're also right now we're doing a universal horror films of the 40s series that we've been doing now for we've been going for a while on it i think we're only up to like 1943 almost to, almost to 1944 so we're covering everything uh, but we've had a lot of fun with that series. So if anybody's into kind of the less talked about universal films, uh, the ones from the forties, um, you can check that out. Oh, I've had fun listening to you guys cover that. And because um, you've been going over, not just the horror films, but also Sherlock Holmes films that yeah. tiptoe yeah. into that. And I think you have mm-hmm. coming out soon. You're going to be going into um, two movies, an episode when you get over the, um, um, oh, what's the series? <laughs> Inner Inner Sanctum. Inner Sanctum yes. series. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I knew you yeah. could help me. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's your yeah, show. I hope you would know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the six yeah, the six inner sanctum films, our plans are to do those two films in an episode. Um and uh but we encourage people to always write in their thoughts. I mean, if there's people who would you know, would have hoped we'd give more like one episode to each film, I mean who really like you know, uh, really, really love those films or really want to talk about them, then we always encourage people to please write in or send us in voice recordings of their thoughts on them so we can add them to, you know, add them to the discussion. Oh, exactly. And and listeners, you know, Rod and Troy go over a lot of great details about different things and they bring up different ideas and motifs. But I will, I will warn you listeners that they, that their, their, their episodes are explicit. Rod does use the naughty words. 
Yes, and uh, yes, and I, uh, I, I, I didn't even ask you before this what your policy on it was. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that I naturally just, I usually naturally, if I'm a guest on a show, I try and and and, and temper my language a little bit. But yes, we 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 uh, we do uh, talk a little blue sometimes on uh, on on those shows. So yes, that is good good caveat to throw out there to warn people ahead of time. Yeah, I don't want I don't want people to be like, oh, you know, and, and holding their Bibles <laughs> and, and screen, you know. Which, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, we, we do not seek to offend. We seek to entertain and enlighten. So, but I'm glad my second Nashi film. And to me, the hardest part is, is at least I saw one prior, you know, which we talked about already, but it's just, if if this is your first Nashi film, this is, this is going to set the bar high for all Nashi films that follow. I did think about that. That was one kind of hesitation I had was like, Okay, it is one of his best films. I mean, I would, I think it is the best film he ever directed. And then, as far as overall, I mean, I think it's definitely probably top three, top top five easily of his films he ever did. As far as just my own personal favorites, <clears throat> but um, you're right. I mean, yeah, because you know it goes across the board. I mean, there's some, you know, uh, there's some bad, there's some not so good Nashy films out there, you know, and then for sure, and uh, we cover them all, and we'll be honest, we're honest about them when we, you know, uh, we try and always find the good in them. But yeah, there's some that so yeah. That's true. It, it's not, they got it, like I said from the first, it's not a typical Nashy film, uh, although he, he did make many good films. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 is the, that is the kind of the drawback of that, is, is if you use that, it, you, you know, you are kind of starting from one of the very, very best. And Troy, I want to thank you. And I have a quick question for yeah. you, because you do, like uh-huh. we, we talked about earlier, your musical group, Secret Commonwealth and stuff. Um, uh-huh. What which song do you think would be good for listeners to hear from Secret Commonwealth? Because whatever song you pick, I'll put at the end of the episode so people can get a taste of what you bring. Right, right. Wow. Um, if you if you want uh, me to, uh, if, if you allow me. Oh sure, sure. No, no. Listen. Um. Well, I tell you what. Since we've you know, I'm trying to think of something that. Well, I tell you what. We you know we're talking about Paul Natchi. There's. I'll give you a couple of choices because how we want to go with it. There's a song that. Is, is called Varulven, V-A-R-U-L-V-E-N, which is Swedish for werewolf. Um, so it's a werewolf song. It's called Varulven, and uh, that's one that, uh, that that might be fun for your podcast. There's another song that's a ghost story song called The Glowing Bones of Craggy Hope. Uh, that's also another one that I would strongly recommend. A lot of people like that. That's a fan favorite. And um, that's a ghost story song. It's a little more folky, you know, the Varuvan song, the Swedish, you know, it's Swedish folk, you know, but the Glowing Bones is maybe a little more, not really Celtic, but like more of Americana, but it's also kind of a taste of what we do. So, um, yeah, I would just, I would throw those two out there. You can have your choice of, of one of those. Pick one. You want to pick one there? Yeah, pick. Yeah, I tell you what, let's, uh, let's go with, well, just because the person who was Swedish, who sang Volruven is no longer kind of in the band, so we don't really do that as much anymore. I guess I'll pick the glowing bones of Craggy Hope because that's still one we do, so it's still more indicative of, of kind of how we sound now. Okay, that's the only listeners you're going to be hearing that in just a minute. Just want to remind all listeners again: um, leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. Seek out the Bloody Pit, the Nashy Cast, and Troy. I want to thank you again for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Stephen Manel, man. It was great meeting you and hanging out with you at Monster Bash, and uh, glad it led to this, and I look forward to doing our, uh, our, I guess we'll call it our Christmas episode later in the year. Yes, we'll be doing Scrooge. I believe you said it was ni- the Scrooge from 1970, right? 
with Albert yes, Finney. The musical Scrooge with Albert Finney, uh, and I'll say it right now, is my favorite film of all time. So that's coming up in the future when it gets to the holiday season of Christmas time. Um, so I hope everybody has a good time. And otherwise, let's go into the song. Through craggy hope there runs a rail Where the mist lies heavy when the moon hangs pale If it's on a walk you're bound to go There's secrets in the mist you ought to know For when I hear that train my mind goes back To the legends that grow along that track the blood that spilled upon that ground And things that died that don't lie down But the glowing bones of Craggy Hole Of all the stories on that haunted line It's the very worst tale that comes to my mind In the days of the wild train robbing bands Bandits grabbed a local switchman they said, raise your red light way up high. That train better stop or you'll surely die. Well, this honest man tried to fight him back. But they shot him and he fell onto the track. The train rolled safe through the Tennessee hills. But the switchman was chopped up beneath its wheels. Now if you see a lantern and you hear a moan And you see in the glow is broken bones If the light is green, no harm to you But if it's red, then you got some praying to do Yeah, the glowing bones of Craggy Hole Of all the stories on that haunted line It's the very still comes to my mind Charlie Dane We were walking back late from a high school game We saw the tracks and like friends would do I got an idea and he got it too We bet we challenged, we double dared Each swore the other would be first scared We took to the tracks with taunting words Passing back and forth the tales we Swallowed up by the mist And then we saw what we never thought could exist Those bones in a light as red as pain I was so damn scared I never heard the train Charlie called to me but I was frozen cold Then he pushed me and down a bank I rode 
the train roared past as I lay on the ground. I looked for Charlie, but he wasn't around. And you know that Charlie ain't never been found. Yeah, the golden bones of Craggy Hole. Above the stories on that haunted line, it's the very worst tale that comes to my mind. Yeah, the golden bones of Craggy Hole. Above the stories on that haunted line, it's the very worst tale that comes to my mind. So if you walk in the Craggy Hope line at night And ahead on the tracks you see a light If you don't see a pile of glowing bones It's just me coming to bring Charlie home Yeah, the glowing bones of Craggy Hope Of all the stories on that haunted line It's the very worst tale that comes to my mind It's the very worst tale that comes to my mind It's the very worst tale that comes to my mind